It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. Believe in ghosts? The first simply disappears, the other two died. Hello, hello, and happy holidays, my pretties. It's your host, Ashley Lana, welcoming you to The Fear Cult, where we break down and analyze true crime and historical cases that have left the world curious for reason. This is the last episode of 2022 before we reconvene in 2023. So, with that being said, welcome to Lullaby. previous episode, I broke down the history of the RMS Titanic, and that episode was personally my favorite due to the history, and I've been studying it since childhood because of my fixation on the whole premise. Whether you believe in fate or not, after you listen to that episode, you'll realize that there was more to the Titanic that meets the eye, and if you know about the Titanic, I still highly recommend that you go back and listen to it because you'll take something that you didn't know out of it. This week, I am doing a fear cult most requested. It is the disgusting Canadian pig farm case from Port Coquitlam, British Columbia. Tonight's show is a worst of the worst, or as we in the fear cult call it, a wow episode, which means the crimes are incredibly graphic and they're traumatizing, which makes discussion very vivid. And we're not doing it to glorify crimes. We are doing it to understand the escalation of how crimes get committed because it doesn't just snap in one day's head, I'm going to kill someone tomorrow. There is always a beginning of the alphabet, and that is what we are here to try to understand. In The Fear Cult, we always respect the victims, and we remember that their families are survivors. Stories deserve to be told, because if they are not, they are forgotten, and history can be repeated. My sources for this episode include The Picton File and On the Farm, both written by Stevie Cameron, Les Desperus de Vancouver, Les Fiers by Connie Philippi, and The Supreme Court of Canada versus Robert Picton. So get comfortable, because sweet dreams are made of these. The following story contains subject matter involving sex, drugs, abduction, race, and murder. Please take into consideration that some topics are not suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hi there, pretty lady. (coughs) How'd you like to come with me for the night? Well, standard rate applies, so whatever is in your means, we can do that. If there's anything extra... That'll cost you more. Only the basics, nothing crazy. I'm over in Port Coquitlam. See, that's really far from here, and we don't like to leave this general area just for safety, so it's not going to work. Tell you what, I'll add more money to make it worth your while for you. Oh? $100. It's only 30 minutes away. What do you say? $100. Fine. But nothing funny. No funny stuff. No, 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 no. No funny stuff. I promise. This is the true story of Robert Picton, the pig farm killer.
Robert William Picton was born on October 24, 1949, in Port Coquitlam, British Columbia, Canada, 17 miles east of Vancouver. Robert had an older sister named Linda and a younger brother named David. Their parents, Leonard and Louise Picton, were eccentric workaholics who owned a pig farm. The property was large, which allowed the Pictons to sell sections of their land for real estate. Butchering their livestock in addition to real estate earned the Pictons a net worth of over $2 million. Robert's father, Leonard, was emotionally detached from his family. The father was extremely abusive and cared more about the farm. In contrast, Louise Picton was the overbearing matriarch. She cared more about the pigs first and foremost. The effects of Louise's dominance over her children had caused Robert and David to have low self-esteem and self-doubt. Robert grew up feeling his need for his mother's approval to feel significant. Of the three children, Linda was treated as a lady. Both parents did not see the pig farm as a suitable place for Linda to be overworked. In result, Linda was allowed to have friends and leave the property outside of school. Robert and David were not. In their early adolescent years, the brothers were bullied for their putrid hygiene. The Picton farm allowed the pigs, chickens, and occasional cows to wander and sleep in the family home. Animal urine and feces had saturated into the walls and fabrics, leaving nothing untouched. Leonard and Louise didn't care nor worry about the public treatment of their children. David got bullied for his speech impediment, while Robert got harassed for being weak and never bathing. It was said that Robert would get so upset at school that he would rush home and head to the farm slaughterhouse. It was here where he would hide in the carcasses of dead pigs. The animals that his mother cherished, and he found comfort. No matter how much gossip was spread about the Pictons, they never changed their hygiene or habits. Except for their daughter Linda, the rest of the family only bathed once a week at most, and wore only one pair of clothes. Robert had developed a blutophobia, which is the fear of bathing, cleaning, or washing, specifically his face. Even after the daily routine of slopping or feeding the pigs and cleaning the barns three times a day, the family was lucky to get Robert into a bath once a month. An event that would change Robert's hopeful perspective on friendship happened in 1961, when he was only 12 years old. Young Robert wanted a personal friendship that he believed could only be filled by an animal. After saving up $35, Robert went to a local livestock auction where he bought a calf, and this calf became Robert's personal significance. Every day, Robert was excited to complete his chores just to play with his baby calf. In an interview, Robert explained their bond and how he wanted the cow to sleep in his room. There were never any sexual acts of bestiality publicly claimed. Two weeks after receiving the calf, Robert came home from school and couldn't find it. He asked his family where it was and he was horrified when his father told him to look in the slaughterhouse. Robert hesitated, comprehending the possibility of his pet being butchered. When he found the calf, it was hanging upside down, cleaned out and dead. Robert's father had killed his son's first attempt to have a real friend. The death of Robert's pet calf was the pivotal moment when Robert's view of life and friendship changed completely. He was 12 years old at this time and he allowed himself to make an independent move to better his own mental health and his home life because he was so lonely, he had no friends. Everything was controlled by his mother, and all she wanted was for her sons, David and Robert, to just work and sleep, school, work, and sleep. And they're just children. And then the two sons end up being neglected, and then when they were at school, they were getting picked on. So by Robert buying this calf, it gave him a personal significance, and it allowed him to separate work and fun around the Picton farm. Now when his father killed the calf, he told Robert, yeah, go look in the slaughterhouse. And he was mortified because he knew that the farm's animals only went there to die. So 
So Robert's father, Leonard, gets doubt of the fucking year award because he actually sent Robert out to go look. And it was really spiteful. And it shows how much he wanted his son to hurt because that was his friend. It was his only friend. And this also indicates just how nasty his piece of work mother is, Louise, because she made the decisions around the farm. And by not caring about the death of her only, of her son's only pet, that shows how she wanted him to only focus on the Picton business. So in 2002, when the RCMP interviewed Robert, they, it just hit me. A lot of Lullaby listeners are international, so you probably have no friggin' clue what the RCMP are. All right, the RCMP stands for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and you've seen their pictures. It's the most typical stereotype visual besides the plaid and the Tim Hortons coffees that we have. So they have the red jackets, the trooper hats, the knee-high boots, and are often pictured riding horses. And for clarification, those are strictly ceremonial uniforms, all right? The RCMP, they'll wear tactical vests just like any regular police officer. The difference between the RCMP and the standard police are pretty much just jurisdiction. So the RCMP have legal authority in every Canadian province and territory, like our FBI. We'll call them our FBI, all right? And the difference is really important because when I'm discussing cases and I talk about the police and the RCMP, although they are both authority figures, they are separate. Now, as the Picton case progresses, due to the social issues, such as the legal policies that were endangering Aboriginal sex workers, and the news made international headlines, and the Vancouver police absolutely made horrendous choices when it came to the lives of the BC's Aboriginal women. Uh, it's, it's awful, but we'll get into it later. Now, coming back to what we were initially talking to about the baby calf, now that you know the difference between the RCMP and the police, when Robert was being interviewed by the RCMP in 2002, Robert told them that the death of his pet calf changed his way of thinking forever. And he said, quote, I finally realized we're not here forever. We're here for the time we're here for. Life goes around and around, and you're only here today. You're not here tomorrow, end quote. And it's a very fatalistic view on life, and it shows just how sad his life was from the beginning. He didn't have anyone who wanted him to see the good in life because they themselves were not happy and the death of his calf made him believe that everything he could ever want would either be taken away from him or leave on its own, resulting in abandonment issues as described by criminologists. So let's continue. In 1963, the Picton family sold their farm and moved to a larger 28-acre property. The estimated value was $3 million, as described by the Canadian Property Assessment. After the crimes, the value decreased due to the investigation. The new 28-acre Picton farm was located near plots of quicksand and smelly swamps. There were barns, a slaughterhouse, coops, a small trailer, and a family house with only one mattress and no shower. The farm had a total of over 700 hogs, 120 cattle, and close to 100 chickens. Robert's sister Linda decided that this was the perfect time to leave her family, and she moved to Vancouver with relatives. Of the entire Picton family, Linda was the only level-headed and intelligent one. Her moving proved how she wanted to distance herself from her toxic family. Linda would grow up to maintain minimal contact. She would have a family with very successful children. Every morning, Robert and his brother David would slop the pigs and then without bathing or changing, go straight to school. At lunch, the boys were required to go home and slop the animals again. When Robert was 15 years old, he got expelled from school for bringing a sexually inappropriate pen into class. Robert, being a social outcast, had no quarrels, and his mother, Louise, was ecstatic that her son could now work on the farm full-time. 
On October 17, 1967, Robert's 16-year-old brother David had been out for a drive when he hit 14-year-old Tim Barrett with his truck. David left the scene and went home to tell his parents. David took his truck to get fixed at the mechanic after he and his dad cleaned the blood off the headlights. Meanwhile, Louise Picton drove to the scene looking for the body of Tim Barrett. When she found him unconscious, Louise rolled his body off the road into a swampy ditch and left. The mechanic was suspicious of David's truck since the Pictons never cared about aesthetics. When the news of Tim Barrett's hit and run hit the news, the mechanic informed the police of David's out-of-character behavior. The police arrested David and explained that he didn't kill Tim Barrett. Tim died due to drowning in the swampy ditch, but no one told the police that it was Louise who rolled Tim's body to his death. In the end, David was only charged for leaving the scene. He received parole and his license was suspended for four years. Later, Robert and Louise would brag of Tim's death and her involvement. When Robert witnessed his mother Louise show no remorse for her actions toward another life, this shaped his future actions. In the early 1970s, when Robert was in his 20s, he became a butcher. He took pride in his job and gained a good reputation around town. David Picton started working in construction and still helped around on the farm. In 1973, Robert had started pursuing relationships with women via pen pal. All of the women lived in the United States. One woman in particular caught his attention, and her name was Connie Anderson from Pontiac, Michigan. Robert traveled to the States to visit her, spending a total of six months traveling. He also visited other women he was talking to. In February, Robert and Connie got engaged after only five weeks. Robert had to go back home to Canada to run the farm, and Connie was supposed to move back to the farm with him, but she never did. Robert told interviewers that he and Connie never had sex, and that overall, he lacked interest in sex in general. The next couple of years proved difficult for the Picton farm. A large barn fire had started and killed over 600 hogs. Then, in 1978, Robert's father Leonard died at 91 years old. And the following year, on April 1st, 1979, Robert's mother Louise died at 67 years old. The will stated that the three Picton children got a third of the farm along with $90,000 each. Only Robert wanted to continue the family business. It was also required that Robert stayed on the farm until he was 40 years old to collect his $90,000. However, in doing so, he received an extra $20,000 up front. The farm had become very run down with cluttered old cars that Robert would buy from auctions. Robert himself lived in a small trailer with a feces-covered mattress. He still didn't care about his appearance, and he stopped bathing completely. He would slick his hair back with butter and wear the same greasy outfit every day. When Robert gained control of the farm, he began going to livestock auctions where he would buy sick animals, such as cows, hogs, and chickens for cheap. These sick animals would carry tumors and abscesses filled with pus. Robert saved money, and then he would butcher and sell the meat to locals. He would even gift some to his friends. One woman swore that she contracted hepatitis C from the gifted meat. The Picton farm was an overall successful disaster. Despite Robert's quality of living, the locals still trusted him with butchering and storing their meats in his house. Robert would take the excess skin and bones from his meat and dispose of it in 40-foot holes scattered around his property or feed it to his pigs. He would also take the rest to a local rendering plant to be processed into other consumables. At one point, Robert was hiring farmhands, but after Robert refused to pay, he told the boys, I can get rid of anyone. The Picton farm maintained its worth. And due to Robert's money, people began using him for it. They used his land as a place to party illegally. For extra profit, 
Robert allowed the Canadian chapter of the Hells Angels to run an illegal chop shop out of the back. When the Vancouver Police Department were informed of this activity, they merely brushed it off. Robert picked and sold meat to many and became friends with some of the officers to get off easy. Robert was considered a plain, hardworking guy, a pigman in his words. When the Vancouver police let Robert go, an underlying reason was that during this time period in the early 1980s, the authorities were trying to catch the beast of BC, Clifford Olson, who was murdering local children and teenagers surrounding Vancouver. They didn't see his chop shop as a priority. Robert's brother David was still working construction at this point. He got up to no good as well. One event occurred when David cornered a female co-worker inside of a trailer on a construction site in Burnaby, BC. David forced himself upon her against a wall and groped her genitals over her jeans. As he attempted to rape her, he threatened to kill her, but another co-worker walked in and stopped it. There was a machine operator who was friends with the Pictons. He threatened her, saying, quote, you'll be cut into pieces if you don't leave town and they'll never find you. It would not be until 1992 when David was convicted of the sexual assault, and he was only sentenced to a year of probation and a fine of $1,000. Many of the sexual assaults involving David Picton would never go to court, because the Pictons knew outlaws who would do anything for money, especially scaring victims into silence. While David flaunted his personal crimes and connections with other criminals, Robert continued to run the family business. David was an extrovert who held the rowdy parties at the Picton farm. While Robert enjoyed the fun, he still enjoyed the company of the hogs. Because David's friends still harassed Robert for entertainment, when Robert got angry, he would command his trained hog to chase them down and attack. Despite being picked on, Robert liked the attention. During Robert's trips to the local Vancouver rendering plant, he would dump large old barrels of scrap skin and bones and meat into the vast pit. The rendering plant then processed the animal byproducts into recovered fats and proteins used to feed livestock and household pet foods. The foreman of the Vancouver rendering plant testified that Robert frequently dumped old filthy barrels with just his bare hands. The man offered Robert gloves, but he refused. Rendering plants reek of death, and he stated that Robert smelt even worse. Over the years, none of the employees took notice of Robert Picton because he was just another guy. However, the foreman described Robert saying, quote, you know, he was such a dirty guy. He was gross looking, actually. I kind of felt sorry for him because he was rolling these old barrels out of the back of his truck with his bare hands. I mean, I work in the rendering industry and it's, you know, dead animals. It's not a very pretty thing to be working with your bare hands. After leaving the rendering plant, Robert would drive through Vancouver's downtown east side red light district. He would proposition local sex workers with money, drugs, and alcohol. Downtown Eastside was known for its poverty, its open drug use, abduction, prostitution, and murder. In the 1990s, 80% of women working the Eastside sex trade came from outside of the Vancouver area. These women were in the sex trade for survival, not because they enjoyed the work. Many of the women would disappear without a trace, most being of Aboriginal descent. It was due to the negligence of the Vancouver Police Department that nothing was done to find these women. Robert preyed on the desperation of these poor women and lured them back to his farm to feed their drug addictions. To Robert, these were transactions. He targeted women that the authorities deemed invaluable because of discrimination and their high-risk lifestyle. When discussing the Robert Picton case, it's important to account all the people who were involved. For example, in 1993, a woman named Gina Houston became close friends with Robert. Robert was known to use his money to gain friendships, and Gina was no different. 
he gave her $80,000 to live on the farm. Gina had helped Robert pick up sex workers to gain their trust. At one point, Gina asked Robert if he directly killed women on his farm. He responded no. Gina would go on to testify at the Picton trial in May 2007, where she told the courts Robert told her once that there were, quote, one, two, three, four, five, or maybe six bodies in one of the farm buildings on his property. She went on to explain that Robert denied killing women and that a close friend was responsible. Gina explained in court that Robert had told her that he was caught and the two should do a suicide pact, but they never did. In 1996, the Picton brothers, David specifically, started a federally registered charity with the alleged mandate to organize parties to raise funds for service businesses. The place was named the Piggy Palace Good Times Society and was located on the back of the Picton farm. The parties were attended by over a thousand people, including bikers, criminals, sex trade workers, and from time to time, off-duty police officers and local city officials. The parties would profit roughly over $10,000 a night. Neighbors often complained of the drug use and the rowdiness, but nothing came of it. The Piggy Palace made Robert feel integrated into society, and he used his money to make friends. Robert liked to pay for women's groceries, and even pay for their rent to gain their favor. A woman named Tanya Carr had used Robert for money and a place to sleep and eat. Tanya claimed that her and Robert had an uncle-niece relationship. Tanya decided to live in the trailer and share a mattress with Robert, rather than living in the family home with David Picton. She explained the two never got sexual and that she had never seen Robert with any women in the 18 months that she stayed there from 1994 to 1995. In court, Tanya Carr got upset when the Crown Attorney suggested that she did not spend as much time with Robert as she testified in order to protect him. Tanya Carr after stated that she was, quote, fed up and wanted to be left alone. By 1995, a total of four women were brought to Robert's trailer. A survivor named Tracy Bullion testified her experience with the pig farmer in 1996. Robert had approached Tracy, offering to pay her for sex in his trailer. She hesitated because of the rancid smell radiating from the cabin of his truck, but ultimately agreed. After the two engaged in sex, Tracy noticed the excessive amounts of women's clothes in his bedroom. As Robert went to pay, he accused Tracy of stealing his wallet and pulled a knife on her. The two eventually came to an agreement and he drove her back to downtown East Side. Robert told Tracy about the women that he claimed to have enjoyed helping financially and helping them get off drugs. Robert told Tracy, quote, if they go back on dope, well then they don't deserve to live. They're useless. They're better off dead. When Robert safely dropped Tracy off, she told her fellow friends and sex workers what occurred and Robert got blacklisted to a degree. For the protection of the survivor, her name has been changed for the following. It was on March 22, 1997, when 47-year-old Robert Picton was cruising around Vancouver's east side. He pulled up next to a young woman named Morgan. Upon seeing Robert, she was hesitant. This man smelt and he gave off an uncomfortable aura. Normally, the sex workers on that side of town did not like to leave the area. Whenever this occurred, Robert would often sweeten the deal by offering more money for their services if they came back to his farm. Morgan agreed, and she sat in the passenger seat of Robert's pickup truck. The smell alone was unbearable, and the two drove in silence until they reached the Picton farm. The two then engaged in sex on a dirty sleeping bag in Robert's trailer. After, Morgan went into the bathroom to inject a mixture of cocaine and heroin. She missed the vein and didn't get a high. 
Morgan asked to use the phone afterwards to inform her pimp that she had completed the job and was on her way back. As she hung up, she felt Robert behind her. Turning around, Robert grabbed her hand and began caressing it slowly. He then locked her left hand in a handcuff, and with phenomenal power, Morgan began fighting back. While wrangling Robert, she managed to grab a knife off the table and swung the blade, striking his jugular vein on his neck. She continued to defend herself by stabbing the knife into Robert's jaw, gouging out teeth in the process. The blade left a slice through Robert's tongue and the outside of Robert's cheek. It was after that Morgan had a foggy memory. She continued to fight outside as Robert chased her. Stealing the knife away, he stabbed Morgan two times in the abdomen, piercing her lungs. She lost a total of three liters of blood. As Robert eventually dropped from the lack of blood, Morgan ran into the road, screaming. She managed to wave down an oncoming vehicle and called an ambulance. Morgan was taken to the Royal Columbian Hospital, where she underwent multiple operations and almost died on the table. Luckily, Morgan survived. Meanwhile, Robert had arrived at the same hospital. While receiving treatment, a nurse discovered the key to Morgan's handcuffs in Robert's pocket. This has a lot of similarities to the David Parker Ray case that I covered in episode two of Lullaby, and it's crazy how they get away with this shit. So Robert gets taken into questioning on April 8th, 1997, and he admits that he stabbed the woman, but because it was self-defense. So according to old Stinky, the woman tried to rob him of $3,400 in cash, and she picked up the knife and she attacked him. He continued to admit that yes, he did stab her twice and that he shouldn't have done that, but it was out of self-defense. So the officers asked if he had any other sex workers on his farm, which he responded, none since the incident, because women were going missing, but it wasn't a priority. Robert Picton was charged with attempted murder, forcible confinement, and assault with a weapon, but the case never went to trial because the poor woman was heavily addicted to drugs and she worked as a sex worker to support the habit. She also sold drugs and was engaged in credit card fraud. And then David Picton, this piece of shit, he hired a private investigator to track her down, get all this dirt on her and hold it against her saying, we have all this stuff on you and if you testify against my brother, we're gonna hurt you and you're gonna go to jail and no one's gonna care about you. So on January 27th, 1998, the charges were dropped and wiped from the books in 1999. The defense attorney explained that at the time of the trial, the woman was using drugs and was not in good shape to testify. And in the end, Robert got off scot-free and this could have been the moment that prevented the future murders that are to come. And this gets worse. Robert only gets charged with $2,000, which is pocket change for him because he's a millionaire. Fun fact, he's the world's richest serial killer, by the way. <laughs> he's only got one thing in this life, and it's that. And the darn Vancouver Police Department at this point, I swear to God, the racism and the discrimination towards the Aboriginal women and sex workers is repulsive because they are people and they deserve to be respected no matter how they're just trying to survive. Now, because Robert got away with attempted murder, this only validates his past and future murders. The police never searched for the missing indigenous women and Robert utilized this and it's so disgusting. Because the police never searched for the missing women, this validated him into murdering low status women. 
The police didn't care, so he sees himself as doing the world a favor. Robert Picton is a mission-oriented killer, and as Robert stated earlier in the story, he would purposely pick up the most drug-addicted and vulnerable women. Robert would serve the flesh from his victims to unknowing customers. Solid power move. It's a personal secret way of bragging to him. And Robert was really sneaky about this because he would keep the victims' heads because they were easy to identify. So he would not take them to the rendering plant. Everything else that he could not take, he fed to his pigs on the farm. The pigs, they can crush bones and consume human flesh quickly and leave no evidence. And here's something to make your skin crawl. Robert dumped the flesh at the Vancouver rendering plant and the rendering plants use the scraps to create other products. And you know where I'm going with this because Robert Picton butchered the animals at the farm and the pigs and he fed the bodies of these women to his pigs and then butchered his pigs and sold them to the BC public. The Vancouver police and the BC provincial health officers issued a statement in March of 2004 saying, quote, what we know from the RCMP is we can't rule out the possibility of cross-contamination. It is very disturbing to think about that there is a possibility some cross-contamination has happened, but the degree of it or when or how much we really don't know. So yeah, do you really think that the authorities are gonna flat out say, you ate human flesh because we were too negligent in searching for these missing women, even though we had multiple opportunities to catch the Pictons? Yeah, we would be out for blood if we found that out. Like if it was 100% confirmed, oh yeah, there's no going back, there's no going back. Criminologists explain that due to Robert's strict upbringing and isolation, this influenced his future. So Robert grew up around blood and flesh, which his mother left him no room for childhood innocence, and it allowed him to feel no remorse and butcher them like pigs. They were objects to him. They were absolutely nothing. At this point, Robert has secretly killed over 20 women and fed them to his pigs, and he buried them in areas of his farm. So he was charged with $2,000 for the attempted murder of a sex worker, and the police let him go without any further investigation. The Vancouver Police Department, they refused to believe that there was a serial killer targeting Aboriginal women because, I'm gonna be blunt, they didn't care. Now, this is where everything gets worse. So warning, the following is very disturbing and is not suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is strongly advised. The year of 1997 was Robert's most active killing year. When Robert would take a woman into his trailer, he lured them with drugs and alcohol, and of course, money. After they had sex, Robert would try to make them feel comfortable by gently maneuvering their bodies into doggy style position. While he played with their hair, he would slowly pull their arms behind their backs, and then he would handcuff them together. Some women he strangled to death with a wire. Others he stabbed, or he would inject them with antifreeze, which causes intoxication, followed by drowsiness, seizures, coma, and soon death. Once the victims were unconscious or dead, he carried them to the Picton slaughterhouse where he hooked them upside down by their legs, drained them of their blood, gutted them, and then dismembered their corpse. He would then feed the scraps to his pigs, taking the rest to the rendering plant or hiding parts around his farm. Even with all the missing women in Vancouver, the police department announced that there was no serial killer in the area. One criminal geographic profiler was not convinced, Vancouver detective Kim Rosmo. 
he discovered 20 years worth of unfound missing persons cases from the Vancouver downtown east side. He noticed the spike between 1995 and 1997. Detective Rosmo explained that the cases prior to those years totaled one to two missing person cases per year until 1995 and 1997, where the total jumped to 27 to 28 missing persons. Detective Rosmo knew Vancouver had a serial killer, but no one would admit to it. He demanded the Vancouver police listen to him to save the women in the area. The result ended with Vancouver Department firing Kim Rosmo. Officers claim they did not investigate the new cases because sex workers live high transient lifestyles. They leave on their own terms and it was not a serial killer. However, almost all of these women received social assistance checks and had prescription harm reduction drugs on scheduled pickup days, which are not logical in transient lifestyles. Many customers, partygoers, friends, and farmhands passed through the Picton farm. Despite Robert's cruel killings, he was actually known to truly want to help those in need, but only if they were friends, and he would let them stay at the farmhouse. Two of these friends was a farmhand named Bill Hillcox and his sister-in-law, Lisa Yelts. After the attempted murder charge of Robert, Bill and Lisa began discussing the local missing women. Lisa explained the piles of female clothes and the stacks of Aboriginal status cards in Robert's drawers. Bill, being terrified of the power the Picton brothers had, still decided to go to the police with his information. The police felt that Robert was harmless, but they put him under surveillance. They did not question or search any of the leads. At the same time, three local women in Vancouver were murdered, but because Robert's DNA did not match any of the evidence, Robert was taken out of surveillance. On February 23, 1999, a man named Bill Wilson had been going for a stroll when he discovered a half-human skull decomposing on the side of the road. Upon further inspection, forensics established that the skull had been professionally sawed in half down the center, not by a medical professional, but perhaps a butcher. There was no further investigation. It would not be until the Picton trials when multiple human skulls were found in Robert's refrigerator, cut the exact same way. That same year, a woman named Lynn Engelson from Surrey, BC had met Robert's female friend, Gina Houston, at a woman's shelter. Both had been addicted to cocaine, and Gina told Lynn of Robert and his parties that offered free alcohol and drugs. Lynn began working on the farm and seen many sex workers arrive with Robert, but then would disappear. These women included 31-year-old Brenda Wolf, who was murdered by Robert in February of 1999. Brenda's daughter called the disappearance of the Aboriginal women across Canada an atrocity and genocide. She rallied for more detox centers, treatment beds, and community representation on a new police board. Many of the victims' families heard all the murders over the news. The police never intended to call them. On March 2, 1999, Robert Picton and Lynn Engelson had picked up 34-year-old Georgina Pappen and brought her back to the farm. Robert took Georgina into his bedroom while Lynn got high in her separate room. Later that night, Lynn was woken by a loud noise and bright light shining from the barn. What is going on? Robert? Robert? 
Robert, is everything okay? As Lynn peeked through the door, she thought her eyes deceived her. She gasped as the barn door squeaked open. Robert was covered in blood, and he strided over and yanked Lynn inside. Get your ass in here! Robert! Shut up. And don't fucking make a noise. What the fuck are you doing? Robert dragged Lynn closer to the dead corpse. Her body was suspended on meat hooks, hanging above a big shiny table covered in blood. Robert, is that the girl from before? You won't is that the say girl a we word. brought back? Is that her? You won't say a word. You will tell no one what you've seen. You got that? I thought you were kidding. Why would you do that? Come take a closer look since you're so interested. If you say anything, you'll end up just like her. You know I'm good for it. Oh my god, Robert. Keep no. your mouth closed or you're next. Now I want you to go into the city. I'll call you a cab. What could you possibly need right now? I want you to get more drugs. Let's go get you some cash. Lynn stayed the night at her friend's house. She explained that she was staying with Robert Picton and was his drug runner. She then told the horrifying story of witnessing Robert gutting a sex worker in a slaughterhouse. A month later, the best friend had to tell the police. She did not fear for her own life anymore. And she told the Vancouver police the second-hand account of the Picton murder. She was one of three informants in 1999. Other informants told police that Robert stored body parts in fridges and admitted to killing sex workers. After Lynn's best friend told the police of what her friend saw, they said, quote, The opinion of the Provincial Unsolved Homicide Unit investigators was that the informant information was not credible and not backed up by evidence. And with that, the police completely discredited the informant. The woman was left angry and she felt that the authorities didn't care. She was convinced that 13 women's lives could have been saved if the police acted immediately. Lynn Engelson was brought in for a 12-minute interview by police afterwards. In fear, she denied everything. Lynn then went to Robert and asked for more money so she could leave the province until things cooled down. By January 2001, the number of missing women had surpassed 60. And it's now that the Vancouver Police Department and the RCMP were like, okay, we can't really ignore this anymore. So they started the Missing Women's Task Force. And they were to find the downtown Eastside women with a $100,000 reward. This tip line began flooding with 12,000 leads. And one name came up time and time again, Robert William Picton, the quiet, creepy pig farmer. Now, this little bastard, <laughs> he gets brought in for questioning in April, and that's when he admitted to stabbing the woman in the past, but he didn't try to kill her, and then he claimed self-defense, remember? So the police have no substantial evidence to arrest him again, so he gets released. Now, homicide detective Laura Mayer Shaner, he has this feeling that Robert is their guy, but they need more evidence to detain him. They can't just go based on hearsay. Two months go by, and 22-year-old Andrea Josberry gets reported missing by her pharmacist. Andrea was completing her rehabilitation. Then, finally, on February 1st, 2002, an informant looking for some quick cash 
He told the RCMP that Robert Picton had a small collection of illegal unregistered handguns in his trailer. The police issue a search warrant and it was granted. And the officers, they started investigating Robert's trailer on the farm. These officers immediately find all these women's belongings and they find identification cards, status cards, and jewelry. So the officers radioed the missing women's task force with all these names and the task force said, don't touch anything. Leave cordon off the entire farm. It is now a crime scene. So in Canadian law, if officers get a warrant to look for handguns and they find evidence for another crime, they can't continue searching for it because they need another warrant for that. So that's what happened. The task force says, we're gonna get another warrant and we're gonna search his property for the missing women. And on February 5th, 2002, the Picton Farm became the largest crime scene in Canadian history. And investigators, they collected handcuffs, notebooks, they had jewelry, they had a gun with a dildo attached to the barrel. Don't ask, I'm not getting into it, I refuse. And they found an asthma inhaler belonging to a Serena Abbotsway. She was a woman who was missing for over a year. So now the news of the Picton investigation had become mainstream and Robert was out on bail. The forensics found the blood of Mona Wilson on a pillow and shower hose, and this was enough evidence to finally arrest Robert Picton. While the investigation on the farm continued, the police decided to interrogate Robert. They showed him photos of the missing women. Robert gave nothing away. He pleaded innocent. The RCMP decided to try another approach, and Robert was placed into a cell with an undercover RCMP officer. After gaining Robert's trust, Robert began bragging that he had murdered 49 women. They got me. They got me on this one. No. Mm-hmm. No shit. Yeah. Fuck, what have they got? Yeah, fuck all. There's little carcasses. Come on, buddy. That's nothing. DNA. They can't finalize if you got a missing persons. It's pretty hard to collect DNA on that. Nah, they got DNA. I find the best way to dispose of something is to take it to the ocean. Do you know what the fucking ocean does? Mm-hmm. The things there ain't much left. I did better than that. <laughs> A rendering plant. Oh, no shit. Yeah. That's gotta be pretty fucking good, eh? Yeah, fuck. Can't be much fucking left. I was gonna do one more to make it an even 50. That's why I was sloppy. I wanted to make one more just to make it to the big 5-0. That's half a hundred. Holy shit. Ah, they're gonna nail me to the cross. They made my own grave being sloppy. It really fucking pisses me off. I was gonna make it even too. Bigger than the ones in the States. Their record was 42, they say. It's just too damn sloppy. Robert completely fell for the psychological manipulation of the undercover officer, and this interrogation tactic is known as the Reed Technique. Now, this interview process is not accusatory. An undercover officer is not given a lot of case details or evidence to implicate the suspect. It is used to get evidence that may or may not be establishing guilt. Most criminals are actually reluctant to confess, usually in fear of legal consequences. Robert did this thing where if a woman was talking to him, he would do his sob story about how he liked helping people. But if men were talking to him, he liked to brag. The undercover officers, they use verbal and behavioral analysis to non-directly aid the suspect into a confession. And the read technique is actually highly criticized due to coercion and false confessions, inaccurately giving information. 
While Robert's being interrogated and on the side being in the read technique interrogation, officers are still searching the Picton farm. Police had the plethora of women's clothes, the jewelry, and the inhaler of the missing woman, and then the DNA of the other woman which was used to arrest Robert. When Robert confessed, it was because of his narcissism. Growing up, he was never the cool kid, so he loved the attention. Robert started to boast that he was now a living legend and the whole world knows who he is. He can't figure out that everyone thinks he's disgusting mentally and physically. And when the undercover officer compared him to Saddam Hussein, Robert actually replied, quote, kinda nice to be similar to Saddam. Outside of the jail cell, officers were still interrogating Robert. They played informant testimonies from witnesses and Robert barely faltered until the officers discussed the quality of police work in the missing women's cases. Robert arrogantly replied it was a mixture of the police negligence and his sloppiness. Once back in the jail cell, Robert confessed to the undercover officer and then masturbated and fell asleep. Robert Pickton explained that many people, 15 to be exact, were going to go down with him. However, Robert never gave any of the names. When investigators searched David Pickton's farmhouse, they found handcuffs, sex toys, a woman's backpack filled with used syringes and condoms. But since Dave Picton was not living on the farm in the last years of the Picton murders, it was not conclusive evidence. David Picton claimed it was an attempt to frame him, and the Crown decided that David Picton was not involved. On April 4, 2002, investigators at the Picton farm discovered a human skull cut down the center along with a foot and a hand in a refrigerator. In May, three months into the investigation, the lower jawbone of Brenda Wolf, who disappeared in 1999, was found in the pig trough. The leg bone of Wendy Crawford was found in the pig cistern. A clump of 70 hairs of five different women was also found. In June, investigators separated two plastic pails containing another decomposing skull and the hands and feet of Mona Wilson, who disappeared in 2001. On July 14th, the hands and wrist bones of Georgina Pappen were found in the dirt of the pigs' cages. The DNA of 33 women was taken from the Picton farm over the course of 18 months. The total cost of the Picton investigation totaled $102 million. Between 1978 and 2001, a minimum of 65 women disappeared from Vancouver's downtown east side. Robert Picton's trial began on January 30, 2006. Robert pleaded not guilty to 27 charges of the first degree in the Supreme Court. On December 9, 2007, Robert William Picton was convicted of the second-degree murder of Serena Abbotsway, Mona Wilson, Andrea Josbury, Brenda Wolfe, Barney Frey, and Georgina Pappen. He was sentenced to life in prison, which in Canadian law is a maximum of 25 years with no eligibility for parole. On February 26, 2008, a second trial was created to discuss the other 20 murder charges on Robert, but was denied. Many believe Robert Picton should have went to trial for the total 26 murder charges he faced. Robert Picton is still incarcerated at the age of 73 years old today. This devastating verdict affected the victims' families very hard. In the end, the case was much larger than just Robert Picton. The negligence of the police department and racism and discrimination towards Canadian Aboriginal women. The Picton case introduced awareness to the dangers Indigenous women face in society. 
As a result, police forces are becoming more educated in the struggles of marginalized groups. Inquiry Commissioner Wally Opal blamed years of inadequate and failed police investigation on Robert to go on unchecked, allowing him to prey on women. Opal said, quote, The women didn't go missing. They aren't just absent. They didn't just go away. They were taken. Taken away from their families, taken away from their friends, taken from their communities. We know they were murdered. Even though Picton is in jail, the violence against women of the downtown east side and other areas of this province continues. It's time to end this violence. That was the true story of Robert Willie Piggy Picton, the man who fed poor women to his pigs. So many people got off on that case, and it was mostly just due to lack of evidence to tie them directly to the crimes. I definitely think Robert's brother Dave was in the know of the situation. And the police, they did an awful job investigating the tips and the leads, years before the actual arrest of Picton. Since the Picton trials, more rehabilitation centers and awareness programs for Aboriginal women are in place. It's just a shame that it took this crime for it to happen. My heart and prayers go out to the women in this case and the families that were affected. You are strong and we love you. Don't ever think that there are people who don't love you. I want to thank my friend Christopher, aka Captain Cook's Food on Instagram, and Eric from the Team TNA podcast for performing in the dramatizations. Check them out on Instagram. I will link them in the episode description. There'll be more, many more. They're coming for me now. And then they'll come for you. For the holidays, the movie I am recommending for our never-ending quest to find a scary movie is one that quickly became a Christmas horror classic. The 2016 Better Watch Out. The movie follows a babysitter who watches a 12-year-old boy for Christmas and intruders enter the home. And it's perfect for the final days of 2022. I'll be seeing you all in the new year and the case I am doing for the first episode of 2023 is possibly the queen of certified fruitcakes. I might even name the episode Certified Fruitcake, insert name. <laughs> I tried to scare you, now you try to scare me. Follow on Instagram at Lullaby the Fear Podcast. Happy holidays for your cult and a happy new year. I wish all you lovelies a safe end of the season, so sweet dreams. Lights out. <laughs>